Have you ever been paired for a project with someone you can't stand or with someone from another culture and the two of you just didn't get along? Were you investigating a murder and maybe wanted to kill the one you were investigating it with? Sounds like it's time for episode 61 of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic indie side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your, they call me Mr. Tibbs, host Howard Kasner. Today, I am happy to welcome back a previous guest, writer-director Josh Kim, who has chosen as his movie the Jackie Chan-Chris Tucker action movie Rush Hour, while I have chosen the Norman Jewison classic In the Heat of the Night, both films about police officers of different and conflicting backgrounds who must come together to solve a case. Before beginning, I do want to encourage my listeners to share, follow, like, or comment on the podcast. I want to know what you think. To begin, Josh, why don't you tell our audience something about yourself? Hi, Howard. My name is Josh. I am in Texas right now. I'm in the home where I was born and grew up in, Southeast Texas. I remember this is when I started to watch a lot of films, go to Blockbuster and get the VHS and later DVD. I live in a small city, so there wasn't a lot of selection, but it wasn't until I studied in China. At that time, they had these pirated DVD stores where you can go in and buy any DVD in the world that was ever made for a dollar. My first time I would see Krasovsky films, like blue, red, white, uh, that opened my mind to film and filmmaking. Well, great. With that, let's get to your selection, and that is Rush Hour. First, some information about the film. Rush Hour is a 1998 American buddy cop action comedy film released in 1998. It was directed by Brett Ratner and written by Jim Kof and Ross Lamana. It stars Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker, Tom Wilkinson, Z Ma, Ken Long, Elizabeth Pena, Mark Rolston, Rex Lynn, Chris Penn, Philip Baker Hall, Julia Su, John Hawks, Clifton Powell, and Barry Shabaka Henley. In Rush Hour, when the new Chinese council's daughter is kidnapped in Los Angeles, the council wants his personal friend and Hong Kong police inspector Lee to come to L.A. to help rescue her. But the FBI doesn't want his help. They are required to have an LAPD officer on board. So as punishment for a botched stakeout, Carter, a vain and vulgar detective, is assigned to babysit Lee and keep him out of the way. But they refuse to be brushed off and try to solve the case themselves if they don't end up killing each other first. Why did you choose this film? So I'm actually writing a buddy cop comedy of my own between a Thai cop and a Korean cop. So I've been looking at references and stuff that has been done in the past. I think I was in high school when I first saw this and I remember it being funny. I think it's a mix of the physical comedy of Jackie Chan and the verbal comedy of Chris Tucker that makes it work. Do you think it still holds up? <laughs> I do. I, I mean, I did laugh at it. I just think it was really funny. What's good about it are the stakes are really high. As a screenwriter, you want the stakes to be high. They don't find the person, the girl's going to die. That guy is very bad. And they, I think they did a really good job of setting up a joke and then later delivering it. I did feel like it could be problematic in terms of how Asians are portrayed. That we can barely understand when they speak English and how women are treated basically as sex objects. I was looking at some of the behind the scenes and I saw that Brett Ratner was wanting to make a Rush Hour 4. I'm really interested in seeing how he would do that in more modern times. But I think there was just really good chemistry between Jackie and Chris Tucker. So it, was, it was overall enjoyable to watch. I'm not sure when I first saw it. I swore that I saw it when it opened. I have this memory of seeing it 
But as I'm watching it, I couldn't remember anything about it. Everything that was happening, I couldn't remember. So now I'm not sure what it was I saw that I thought was Rush Hour and whether it is or not. It just could be that I just don't, for some reason, remember it. In many ways, this was like seeing it for the very first time. And I found it very entertaining and a lot of fun. I think it is a rather good example in many ways of the body cop type of film. What are some of your favorite scenes? Just any time that Jackie and Chris were together, but I remember the humor of Chris Tucker, like when Jackie gives him the bomb or when Jackie has the bomb trapped on him. Get that bomb away from me. <laughs> and he's supposed to be like a police officer. <laughs> I, I miss actually seeing Chris Tucker on the screen. He was on Fifth Element, which was one of my favorite films. And on Friday, it seems like he hasn't been on screen for a long time. And maybe this is one reason why they aren't able to do Rush Hour 4. He never worked all that steadily. He did in the 90s. There are gaps in the years. I mean, he's a stand-up comedian, so as far as I know, he would take time off to do one of his shows. That's not unusual. But he has been in recent movies like Silver Linings Playbook and Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. It has Rush Hour 4, but it's rumored. So we'll have to see what happens with that. For me, any fight scene with Jackie Chan, and we'll get into him more later, but I love Jackie Chan. So whenever he has these fight scenes, I think they're wonderful. I think he is the Fred Astaire or Jim Kelly of martial arts. They're more than fights. They're dance numbers. They're like ballet. Whenever I see Jackie Chan fight, I just admire the gracefulness and the beauty of what is going on. I think you're right. He does work very well with Chris Tucker. I like the scene at the taxi where they pull guns on each other in a John (laughs) Woo style. And then the taxi driver joins in. He seems to have a gun of his own. Then when Jackie Chan gets on the tourist bus and he grabs a street sign and then drops onto a truck, there's the scene at the pool hall where Chan uses the N-word, which we all saw coming, but it's still very funny. And I love the kidnapping of Sue Young because she just gives them hell. I mean, she is not easy to kidnap. She's almost like the ransom of Red Chief. Yeah, I love her. I read that actually when she was kicking, when when Ken Long was trying to pull her out of the car, she actually really kicked him and she really hit her (laughs) with her necklace. They said they found her, the casting director I read, they went to a lot of schools in LA and they even looked around Hong Kong and New York, but she was the one that really stuck out. But she is great. She never went on to do anything else, but she is one of the highlights of the film. What do you think of the direction, which is by Brett Radner? I was pretty amazed. He was in his like, 20s when he made that. <laughs> of course, he had a good team around him. He had, I forgot who the cinematographer was, but he was an like, experienced older cinematographer. Adam Greenberg is the cinematographer. It had a second unit director for the action sequences, but I think he did a pretty amazing job. I thought it was really great. Even controlling all those extras, <laughs> that can be really difficult. And there's so many scenes with so many extras. I think he does do a very good job here. Very solid. He's mainly a studio director of popular cultural films with the Rush Hour 1, 2, 3, Red Dragon, Tower Heist. Though he seems to be fading a bit. We don't really talk about him much anymore, though maybe we will with Rush Hour 4. But in the meantime, besides doing these films he's known for making musical videos and apparently he's made a ton of music videos i think with people like michael jackson and beyonce so he's not a director who seems to have risen above the major directors of his time 
The screenplay is by Ross Lamana, who did the original story, and then Jim Kopf adapted the screenplay. Here, it might be interesting to talk a little about buddy cop films. As you say, you're planning on making one, and you've written one, which actually I must say that I've read a first draft of it, and it seems to have a lot of promise, so I hope it gets made. Basically, the definition of a buddy cop film is a story about two police officers, though it's not restricted to just officers, who are of vastly different backgrounds, having joined together to solve a crime. It's now become a subgenre all its own. The first official buddy cop film is often considered to be 48 Hours, made in 1982, which appeared Dick Nolte and Eddie Murphy. But then you have Beverly Hills Cop, Running Scared, Lethal Weapon, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and of course Rush Hour. There are some films considered to be precursors to buddy cop films, and that's Secure Kurosawa Stray Dog, and the film we'll be talking about next in The Heat of the Night. What is it about buddy cop films that appeals to you and, and appeals, do you think, to the audience? Maybe it is there's two different cultures at first not understanding each other, but then coming together. And the only way they're going to be able to solve the case is if they actually come together and start working together. Maybe that's you know, like the world, right? There's two different cultures, different people, and we're not going to be able to solve the problems unless we are able to overcome our cultural differences and come together and work together. There's a lot of humor that also can arise from it because these cops are from totally different cultures. Sometimes I think, among other things, especially the points that you've already made, it can allow us to laugh at politically incorrect situations on screen without feeling guilty about it. Because these, <laughs> these do tend to what I call gentle stereotyping and getting laughs off of ads or mean attacks on other cultures ultimately doesn't really offend anybody. Also, buddy cops can be seen as somewhat postmodern in that, as you say, they take different cultures, they treat these cultures as equal, and finally meld them together, which is one of the things that postmodernism does. And in many ways, I think of it as a fusion restaurant. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Russell Mana, who did the story, pretty much seems to be known for nothing but Rush Hour and the sequels and the TV series. Jim Kolf, who did the screenplay, did films like National Treasure and TV series like Grimm. He has a very big career. If you go to IMDb, does everything. But his best films are probably two earlier ones, Stakeout, which is sort of another buddy cop movie, and the sci-fi film, The Hidden. Oh, I didn't know he did Stakeout. Okay. The acting, of course, you're right. Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker do form a great team. They're very funny. After the success of Rumble in the Bronx, Brett Ratner wanted to put Jackie Chan in a buddy cop movie, not as a co-star sidekick, but on equal footing. A few days later, Chan agreed to star in the film. Not long after, flew to Los Angeles and met Chris Tucker. As I said, I've always thought of him as Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly of martial arts. I just find his fight scenes, which he does himself, he doesn't use step in, sometimes to unfortunate happenings, like breaking things, but they are like ballet numbers. But I think to a certain degree, I don't know how serious or how far to take this, Charles Taylor of Salon.com is critical of how Hollywood has used Jackie Chan. And he said Chan is one of a kind performer. Bruce Lee crossed with Donald O'Connor in the Make Him Laugh number from Singing in the Rain. Hollywood needs to stop treating him as if he were one of these fondue sets given as wedding gifts in the 70s, a foreign novelty shoved in a closet due to absolute cluelessness about what to do with it. Sometimes I do think that's the way they use Jackie Chan. He never really exactly played leads. He always plays co-leads. To a certain degree, is there to exoticize a film. At the same time, I love Jackie Chan. 
<laughs> so how do you feel about Jackie Chan? He's huge in Asia, and he's in a lot of Chinese language films. So can you remind me, what was it again that Charles Taylor said we were not using Jackie Chan to his fullest? Right. I think he doesn't like the idea that he's always paired with somebody else as sort of an exotic addition to a movie in the U.S. Of course, as you say, overseas, he's always the star. That is kind of true, because I remember The Foreigner, and I think The Foreigner, he was a father trying to save his daughter, and that was one that he led on his own. He's working on another one where he's paired with John Cena, called Snafu. Yeah, post-production. That should be fun. So maybe it is those ones when he is paired with an American actor that travels more. In China and in Asia, he can lead a film on his own. I think it's actually perhaps worldwide, outside the U.S., that he can carry a film on his own. I mean, he is so big, not only in China, but in Asia, but I think he can lead film on his own, even in the U.S., do you agree? I think he should be able to do that in the U.S., but for some reason, I don't feel like they allow him to. One critic said that he is probably the most recognizable star in the world. I oh, mean, we only think of things from the U.S. perspective. And in the U.S., he's not. But that doesn't mean anything overseas because there are people who are huge overseas that are not huge in the U.S. And we somehow have this thought that if they're not huge in the U.S., they're not huge. <laughs> when we're in reality, we're only one small part of the world, and we're even losing influence when it comes to who is big in movies, especially when it comes to China. I think I read something that said within Asia or some parts of Asia that Korean films do better than Hollywood. South Korea is making the most interesting films in the world right now, along with Romania's. And China, I think, a few years ago sold as many tickets in the theater as the U.S. did. That was a big sign of what may be to come. China, it's rising. You know, I think they just beat the U.S. in the number of gold medals in this Olympics. The cinemas in China still, there's so many people that go. They'll definitely overtake the U.S. in terms of box office. Jackie Chan himself, we can't look in his heart. We can't know everything that he's doing or why he's doing everything that he does. But it feels like to me, talking about from that perspective, he has changed over the years. My memory, and I can't say this is true, that this movie takes place on the day that Hong Kong is being given back, I guess, for lack of a better word, to mainland China. And at that time, both John Woo and Jackie Chan came to the U.S. to make movies. And the story was, is they came to the U.S. to make movies because they didn't want to be in Hong Kong for fear of the communist takeover. But as of late, Jackie Chan, I believe, has now joined the Communist Party and is very pro-China. I don't know whether it's political consideration. I think it's more economic. It's always been any filmmaker's dream. Not dream, but there's a lot of opportunity in the U.S. to make big budget films that can reach people around the world. I think maybe John Mook and Jackie could have been drawn to Hollywood. Maybe that's where the money and the budgets were so they could make bigger films. But then later, China offered you know, even bigger budgets. Certainly. I think the idea of it being more economic than anything else is probably quite true. Fortunately, I think John Woo wasn't treated very well with his movies in the U.S. And now that he's gone back to Hong Kong, I think his movies tend to be a bit more interesting. Jackie Chan has expressed dissatisfaction with the film. He said, I didn't like the movie. I still don't like the movie. But it seems to be because he said that I don't like the way I speak English and I don't know what Chris Tucker is saying. Mm -hmm. And as in the movie, when Chan first met Tucker in a meeting, he said he couldn't understand anything he was saying. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't think his English is that bad, but he doesn't like his English. And I can understand that he might not be that comfortable with it. And then having to star with other people, and you can't understand 
understand what they're saying, that can be very difficult to act again. Also, because Chris Tucker is improvising, he improvises all his lines, and I can see that would just be really difficult to work under. I saw one interview where Jack B said when he went back to Hong Kong after the shooting of the first movie, he said, I'm never going to do a Hollywood film again. But then he was in Hong Kong one day, and then Chris and other people called him and they were yelling out on the phone it's like opening weekend i think it was the biggest blockbuster for comedy at that time and it made millions and millions of dollars and then jackie was like okay maybe we can do another one and then he went on to do others like shanghai noon and that series Mm -hmm. as well but you were talking about the cinematographer adam greenberg and that you thought that was a big contribution to the movie adam greenberg was an israeli american he's now retired he seemed to start out doing schlock for people like menahem golan and then became a successful cinematographer of pop culture films like this one and Ghost Sister Act. But his best films are probably Terminator, Near Dark, and Terminator 2. But also, along with the cinematography, which I agree with you, very good, the editor, Mark Kelfrich, is also, along with the second unit director, really responsible for much of the film working so well. Who is the second unit director? You know, I don't know. It's a very good question. Terry Leonard. Oh, wow. He did the stunts for Inception, Furious 7, Apocalypse Now. He did second unit for so many Fast and Furious. He's big. Yes, he's very, very big. Still working. People, I think, forget that a lot of these scenes that they think are just incredible are not done by the director. They're done by second unit directors. Chariot Race and Ben-Hur is first going to be staged by the second unit director working with the director. They're really big in movies like this. He does quite a job here. What did you think about the music? Yeah, I thought the music was good. Also reminded me of Beverly Hills Cop because the music is so iconic in that as well. And I think the music is so great in both these movies. One of the similarities of In the Heat of the Night is that the musicians in charge and the composers are really known for their jazz scores. Though I don't think you have a jazz score in this one. You do in The Heat of the Night. You don't really have one here. But Lilo Schifrin, who is the composer here, was one of the top film composers of the 50s to the 80s. As I said, especially known for his jazz scores. He did everything from Full Hand Luke and Clint Eastwood films like Dirty Harry. But he's perhaps most famous for the Mission Impossible theme. That is one of the more iconic pieces of music in film and television history. Yeah, definitely. Howard, let's go to In the Heat of the Night. I'm so excited about that. Well, with that, here's some more information about the movie. It cost between 33 to $35 million to make and made $244.4 million at the box office. There are two sequels, Rush Hour 2 and 3 in the television series, and perhaps there is going to be a Rush Hour 4. Ratner wanted to have the dialogue of the opening scenes in Cantonese, which is Chan's first language, but Chan insisted on doing it in Mandarin, since it was more widely spoken. After filming, Chan's manager complained that Chan's Mandarin was unintelligible, but Ratner opted not to have it dubbed for the English release, since he wanted Chan's natural voice, and the vast majority of American viewers wouldn't be able to tell his Mandarin was not correct anyway. The official soundtrack album was also a success, certified platinum on January 21st, 1999. Rush Hour was the catalyst for the creation of the review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes. Really? Yes. (laughs) News to me. (laughs) Sin Dung, the website's founder and a Jackie Chan fan, was inspired to create the website after collecting all the reviews of Chan's Hong Kong action films as they were being released in the United States. In anticipation for Rush Hour, Chan's first major Hollywood crossover, he coded the website in two weeks and the site went live shortly before the film's release. So thank you, Jackie Chan. (laughs) We have (laughs) 
With that, let's get to my selection, and that is In the Heat of the Night. First, some information about the film. In the Heat of the Night is an American mystery film released in 1967. It was directed by Norman Jewison and written by Sterling Sillifant, based on the novel of the same name by John Ball, which was published in 1965. It stars Sidney Poitier, Rod Steiger, Warren Oates, Lee Grant, Larry Gates, James Patterson, William Shallard, Bea Richards, Peter Whitney, Kermit Murdoch, Larry D. Mann, Matt Clark, Arthur Mallett, Quentin Dean, and Scott Wilson. One night in the small town of Sparta, Mississippi, a local police officer finds the dead body of a man who was going to open a factory in the town. At the same time, a black police officer from Philadelphia happens to be waiting to change trains at the local depot. When he is arrested for the murder, it quickly becomes clear he is not the culprit. However, he is then coerced by his boss and the local white racist sheriff into helping solve the murder, increasing racial tensions in the town. What do you think of the pairing of the two films? So I wanted to ask you, is it a buddy cop movie? It's called a precursor to a buddy cop Okay. I do agree that it can be defined as a buddy cop movie. Usually the cops are reluctant. They usually come together somewhere in the movie, but the chief, the racist white chief, doesn't really come around until like the very, very end. And by that time, it's almost like... It's too late, dude. <laughs> it's so little. But I love this film. I cannot believe I hadn't seen it earlier. This is the first time I saw it. I got goosebumps so many times. Bums from Deliver the Lines, Injustice sometimes just being so angry but then also just feeling so good like the scene when Virgil slaps Endicott back we're going to be talking about that scene big time <laughs> okay I love this movie so much and I just can't believe I hadn't seen it growing up in southeast Texas I live in a small city you're really influenced by the films you watch at the time I was going to Blockbuster the films that I would rent if they were gay they would portray the gay characters really depressed or suicidal I think after I saw those films I felt when I make films, if they have gay characters, I do want to show more positive portrayals. Parents aren't crying when the sun comes out or gay people aren't killing themselves because they're bullied at school, even though that is the reality. But my reasoning was that even though at that time it might not be a world that didn't exist, it's almost to show people what is possible so we could work to create that better world. But when I watched In the Heat of the Night, this is almost acts like a record of time. And even within that movie, one of the characters says, there's a time when I could have you shot. I don't know. There's so many good lines and i think it's really beautiful i really really loved watching that and i think it's still so relevant today that is a sad thing it is still very very relevant i can't remember exactly when i saw it it wasn't very long after it opened in 1967 i probably would have been a little young to have seen it in the movie theater so perhaps i saw it in college or saw it on tv first but it had been around that time it's a very evolving mystery it's highly entertaining i think a little of it may have become a bit dated though i think that's more structural than anything else but the mystery does hold up and it definitely has a place in film history and is a movie of some importance other than the slap scene which we will be getting to do you have any other favorite scenes i really like the camera work and this last project i was working on we used a lot of zoom it was really amazing to see how they use zoom as well i think a lot of those zoom that they use just for exterior shots there's just one shot where one of the fugitives is running across the bridge to the across the state line it starts from wide and then it zooms up to him on the bridge really close up i thought that was really beautiful a lot of the lines are really great. I remember towards the end, they said, there's white time in jail and color time in jail. The worst time you can do is color time. 
that scene on the bridge always exhausts me. I'm thinking he only has to get halfway across the bridge because the state line would be right down the middle of the river. And you realize that is a really long bridge. And I just get exhausted watching him run and run and run and realize he's not even going to get halfway across before he loses steam and the sheriff gets him. I like a lot of little scenes that show the sheriff sort of giving way to Virgil Tibbs. At one point, he gets in the back of the police car when Warren Oates is going to drive them around and lets Sidney Poitier sit in the front, which is something that you simply didn't do in that time in that place. And then at the end, when he carries Tibbs' bag to the train, there he's acting as a white porter carrying a black man's bag, which was very telling at the time, and people talked about that at the time. Of course, the famous line, you know, what do they call you up there in Philadelphia? And he says, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Tibbs. <laughs> Always gets a big laugh and applause in the theater. And I also did like the ending where Tibbs is surrounded by these people, but he figures out how to turn the crowd against each other. Mm-hmm. When he tells the brother, look in her purse, she has $100 and she's using it to get an abortion. And this is the person who's the father and he's able to solve that actually by himself. But yes, now we get to the slap, which I don't know if someone else said it or I said it. Back when I saw it in the late 60s, early 70s, I started calling it the slap heard round the world. Uh-huh. What was your reaction to this scene? I got goosebumps. I was so excited. <laughs> I was like, yes. Well, I was shocked when Virgil got slapped, but I loved it when he slapped him immediately back. And then just the reaction on Endicott's face when that happened. The slapping scene helped make the film so popular for audiences that the film earned the nickname Super Spade versus the Rednecks. <laughs> when the film opened, Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier would go to this theater called the Capitol Theater in New York. They did it for fun because they wanted to figure out how many black and white audience members there were in the theater. Black audience members would cheer while white audience members would be left speechless and say, oh. <laughs> uh, and this was generally the reaction to the movie where it was shown. This was somewhat similar to the movie The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis where they play two convicts on the run. At the end, Poitier's character has to decide whether to help Tony Curtis's character. White audiences would cheer him on. Black audiences would scream, don't do it. Just leave him. Get away. This scene was not in the novel. Poitier says the scene was almost not in the movie. He says that he told the producers, the director, everything, I'll tell you what, I'll make this movie for you if you give me your absolute guarantee that when he slaps me, I slap him right back and you guarantee that it will play in every version of this movie. Mark Harris in his book, Pictures at a Revolution, which we'll actually be talking about later, says that the copies of the original draft of the screenplay clearly depict the scene as filmed, which is a little different than what Poitier claims. But it doesn't seem to be in an early outline of Siliphants and was eventually added to the first draft of the, of the screenplay. But yes, this was huge. And it's still, even today, quite a scene. Yeah. The movie as a whole, it's what I call a transitional film. And I mentioned the book Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris, which is about the 1967 Oscar race for Best Picture, which he claims said goodbye to the old Hollywood and was emblematic of the birth of the new Hollywood. 
The five picture nominations that year were Dr. Doolittle, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, and In the Heat of the Night. Doolittle and Dinner represented the old Hollywood. Doolittle was the last picture that a studio was able to cram down the voters' throats in getting a nomination. After this, the studio lost more and more power in being able to do that. And Dinner was a very safe look, also with Sidney Poitier, at racial relations that appealed to the old Hollywood, mainly the older white elite, and their approach to social problems films. The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde were breaths of fresh air influenced by existentialism and the French New Wave, which left Night as the compromise between those, which won. It was edgier than Doolittle and Dinner, but not quite as alienating as Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate. I wonder how it was received. I mean, that's great to hear, but I wonder, did anyone not like the film in 1967? The critics liked it. If they didn't like it, it wasn't because of the themes so much. Well, it was in a way. And we'll get into that some when we talk more about Sidney Poitier. But as edgy as it was when it came to racial relations, Sidney Poitier is still to a great degree playing the type of character he often played. The safe black character who was not alienating to white characters and would solve white people's problems. So there were some people who had issues with that. And that shows you that things were changing, that we were getting away from the previous way racial relations were being shown. But sometimes they had problems with screenplay. They think the themes and ideas and the direction and the technical aspects were a bit superior to the screenplay. So there was that. But generally speaking, this was a huge hit. So there's only two small things for me. I didn't get the pie guy. Like I didn't get the pie. But did you understand that? Just that he didn't like Warren Oates and he did this to humiliate him. He made sure that he could never get pie. It might be something because of Warren Oates's lust, I guess you might say, for the female character who is the one who was pregnant and is getting an abortion. The guy at the diner is the father of the child. I did want to ask you, do you think Virgil's character changed? If so, how? Or is it important if his character changed or not? This is also one of the areas where I have a little problem with the movie. They try to equate black, quote, racism, unquote, with white racism. They had that joke at the very beginning where he tells his boss in Philadelphia, no, I'm not racist. And then he admits that he was going after Endicott, the guy he slaps, because he hated him so much that it blinded him to who the real murderer was. And at the end, he does get that little smile, that smirk to Gillespie, the Rod Steiger character. But generally speaking, if he changes at all, it's mainly this realization that his quote-unquote racism got in the way of his investigating the murder. But you're right, he doesn't really change that much. It's the Rod Steiger character who really, really changes. Okay, as a script consultant, is that important, whether he changes or not? No, in fact, I don't think a character has to change at all in order to make a film. I think there are lots of movies where the main character is the same character at the end as he is at the beginning. What I always say is I don't care if the characters on screen change, if they're different at the end than at the beginning. All I care about is whether the audience is different at the end than they were at the beginning. Oh, that's good. That's interesting. I like that. I don't think Sidney Poitier really changes that much. And it's not important that he does. He's not the one who should be required to change. It's the sheriff who needs to change. And he definitely does change at the end. The director is Norman Jewison, who made movies with themes of social significance that were controversial for the time. What do you think of his directing? 
Yeah, it was great. I had no problem with it. The only thing is, I think when Sidney Poitier has to decide whether he's going to stay or not, because he can go at any time. If he saw black people suffering earlier, they were saying that if they find the killer, then the wife is going to stay. There'll be more jobs for black people. If he actually saw that before he made the decision, if he saw something that made him want to stay, everything else was pretty amazing. I really loved it. I think you do have a point there. His ultimate decision to stay is not to be of benefit to the black characters in the town. The factory that they're opening is going to employ 1,000 people, 500 white, 500 black, which in itself was a bit controversial in the town, but they needed the economics, so they were more than welcoming to this factory. But yeah, his motivation tends to be for other reasons. Norman Jewison was a very successful studio director. His movies are quite entertaining. He did Fiddler on the Roof, Moonstruck, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. But he never really broke out from that and became a significant director outside of that. He never rose up to the level of Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese, directors of that kind. But screenplay was by Sterling Sullivan. This is his best-known film. He worked on schlock like The Poseidon Adventure and The Tearing Inferno, perhaps besides In the Heat of the Night. What he is best known for are creating the TV series like Perry Mason, The Naked City, and Route 66. And what did you think of the screenplay? Uh, it was amazing. Great lines. Everything was good. I do at times find the structure and the plotting a bit clunky. I didn't notice this the first time I saw it, maybe in the second. This, I think, is the fourth or fifth time I have seen the movie. And I started noticing little things. At one point, Cindy Poitier is just at the factory grounds where they're going to build the building. And I'm going, when did he decide to go there? He's just suddenly there. And then the sheriff shows up. And I'm going, how did the sheriff know he was there? Mm-hmm. And he's constantly told, you can't go walking around alone. There are all these people out to kill you. And he just mm-hmm. goes off by himself. Mm-hmm. Those little things get to me, but it's a very solid murder mystery. I think I would have felt a little bit more satisfied if the racist white cop came around earlier. Well, he keeps going back and forth. He's racist, but to a certain degree, he's not as stupid as he seems. Quickly catches on to the fact that Virgil Timms, whether he likes it or not, is smarter than he is, better at the job, and if they're going to solve this murder, he is going to condescend to let a black man solve this that automatically does put him a little above everybody else around him because he knows that. He knows what's going on, that he is racist, but smart enough to know, let him solve this mystery. And he does come around in small ways. Like I said, when he gets in the back of the police car or when he has him over to his house and they start talking. And then that turns at one point where he feels like Virgil Tibbs is pitying him to be pitied by a black man. He can have that. It does take him a while, though, to fully come around. And he's probably still very racist. I mean, I don't think he's going to be treating the black characters in his town all that much better than the way he was treating him before. Right. But he doesn't shoot Sidney Poitier or attack Sidney Poitier when he slaps Endicott. He sort of knows that something is changing, even if he doesn't realize it. There are hints of existentialism in the movie, which was making its way into American films at the time. Tibbs is thrust into an absurd situation. He's a black man arrested for a murder he obviously didn't do. And now he has to decide what will define him. And this will be, as Gillespie says, the sheriff, to show that he is smarter and better than any white man in Sparta. And that's how he's going to define himself. What do you think of the acting? Oh, yeah, all the acting is great. I wrote that down. I thought all the actors were really great. But the wife, Lee Grant. I really enjoyed watching that. 
Yeah, Lee Grant was an actor who started out on stage and TV more in the 50s, and then she got blacklisted right. during the McCarthy days okay. for being a communist or a socialist sympathizer. Rod Steiger, is, he's one of our stronger character actors who played leads. He's very method and, let's face it, a bit of a ham. And he also wasn't the best judge of what movies he should make. He started making some really clunkers after winning the Oscars, so he has a very uneven career. And then later on, he suffered from depression and art problems, which made it difficult for him to find the rules. But he did win the Oscar for this. Wow, that's great. And Sidney Poitier did not win an Oscar then. For Sidney Poitier, this was a turning point in his life as an actor. And it's kind of surprising, perhaps even ironic. This was one of his best years in movies. But this is also the year that signified his end of being relevant. He was in three top-grossing films that year, In the Heat of the Night, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and To Serve with Love. And that's why he probably didn't get a nomination for anything, because they had these three movies, and they just canceled each other out. But though Poitier was a fine actor, he was a really good actor, he filled a certain niche when it came to black actors at the time. And it's one of the reasons why he became so popular, because he was popular with both white audiences and black audiences. But it was because he was safe, it was non-threatening. To sum up why he was popular with white audiences is that he was a black man you could trust with white women. They didn't have to worry about him being around their wives and daughters. They knew that he would be safe. This was the time the civil rights movement was coming along. The black audience was losing interest in that kind of character. He still acted and directed, but he was no longer really relevant. Chef came out in 1971, and that type of character became more appealing to black audiences. Have you seen many Poitier films? Do you like him as an actor? Actually, I think these are the first ones that I remember. I didn't see the one where I think he won an Academy Award for The Defiant One. No, he won it for Lilies of the Field. He was nominated okay. for The Defiant One. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen any of these. I think he's a really good actor, so I do highly recommend it. I think you mentioned the cinematography, which is by Haskell Wexler. Yeah, I loved it. I, I talked about the Zoom earlier. I thought yeah. it was really interesting. I remember as soon as his name came up in the credits, the first thing I thought about was, wasn't he some, did something with American Graffiti? And yes. I looked it up and he was like a consultant for American Graffiti. But I remember loving the cinematography and American Graffiti. He is one of the most prominent and critically respected cinematographers of all time. He was judged to be one of film history's 10 most influential cinematographers in a survey of the members of the International Cinematographers Guild. And yes, when I watched this film, I just feel the heat feel the sweat on everybody and there were little things i liked when they're going around in the police car you only see things that the headlights light up oh, so yeah. it's dark at the edges and he started on documentaries his first feature was america america as you say he consulted on american graffiti then he did who's afraid of virginia wolf his most influential film is medium cool which was shot in a cinema verite style which he also directed and i saw that in college and i was quite blown away by that very different from other kinds of films because it is shot cinema verite style as if it was happening at the time. I mean, it's just very realistic, which has its good points and bad points. But it was happening at the time of the riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, and he incorporated that in the film. And The Heat of the Night is also important for being the first major Hollywood film in color that was lit with proper consideration for a black person. Yeah, As I, read, I read that. Asa Wexler recognized that standard strong lighting used in filming tended to produce too much glare on dark complexions and rendered the features indistinct, so he adjusted the lighting. The editing is by Hal Ashby. Are you familiar with Hal Ashby? 
No, what did he do? He started out as an editor, but he became a solid director of the New Hollywood. The one you'll probably most know him for, perhaps, is Harold and Maude, is, okay. but also The Landlord, Shampoo, and then Being There with Peter Sellers. There's oh. uh, after being there, his films became less interesting. He formed a production company called Lorimar, but he had trouble with the producers, and he had a drug habit. So after being there, he goes into a decline. He made a film called Eight Million Ways to Die, and I know this because it got very popular in China, not the film, but the actual book. A famous actor, uh, Tony Leung, in Hong Kong, this was one movie that it was like his dream to be able to play the detective. I don't think I've seen the film. I may have. I think it is a strong cult following. One of the last interesting films he made. And then there's the music. I don't remember the music so much. You may probably remember the opening more than anything else. It's by Quincy Jones, who was one of the biggest jazz composers and music producers. He was major, major, major. Today, perhaps, though, he may be best remembered by the third part of the Austin Powers movies, where he plays himself. Well, with that, here's some more information about the film. It cost $2 million to make and made $24.3 million at the box office. It received seven Oscar nominations, winning for picture, screenplay, actor, sound, film editing, and was nominated for director and sound effects. Mike Nichols won for best director that year for The Graduate. In talking about whether it was relevant or not, the Oscar ceremony that year was postponed by two days due to Martin Luther King's assassination. Oh, wow. I don't think I remember that. I remember when it was postponed because of Ronald Reagan's, the assassination attempt on his. But I'm not sure if I was watching the Oscars in 1967. In 2002, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The quote, they call me Mr. Tibbs, was listed as number 16 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes. Although the film was set in Sparta, Mississippi, most of the movie was filmed in Sparta, Illinois. And you can see many of the film's landmarks still today. This was due to racial fears. Portier and Belafonte had been threatened by racial groups and the KKK when they had made a movie in the South earlier. And Sidney Portier refused to make a movie south of the Mason-Dixon line. Though he did go into Tennessee for the Endicott scene at the plantation because they couldn't find a cotton plantation north of there. They did choose Sparta, Illinois, so they wouldn't have to change all the signs. There are two sequels. They call me Mr. Tibbs and The Organization, and a 1988 television series with Carol O'Connor and Howard E. Rollins. Bea Richards, who played the abortionist Mama Kaliba, played the mother of Sidney Poitier's character in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner that same year, and she was nominated for an Oscar for that film. People may recognize William Schallert, if you were as old as I am, as the father in The Patty Duke Show. He was the mayor of the town. And Scott Wilson, who plays Harvey, the second person accused of the murder, the one running across the bridge. His next film is In Cold Blood. Virgil's salary of $162.39 per week would be roughly $1,285 in 2020. The cash in his wallet was $127, which comes to 1005 which is actually a lot of money to be carrying around right. in 1967. The salaries may not quite translate because salaries 
didn't always rise with inflation. In 1968, Quincy Jones and his songwriting partner Bob Russell became the first African Americans to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song for The Eyes of Love from the film Banning. Jones was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score for In Cold Blood, making him the first African American to be nominated twice in the same year. In 1971, he became the first American to be the musical director and conductor of the Academy Awards. And in 1995, he was the first African-American to receive the Academy's Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. With that, let's start closing out. And I came to the dreaded part where I asked you to choose a film or two to go with your choice that might interest our audience. Brooklyn 99. I don't think this is a buddy cop film. Jump Street, the newer ones. But In the Heat of the Night, such a great film. I would highly recommend anyone move that up next on your playlist. Great. For that, I'm going to list some of my favorite petty cop films. Like In the Heat of the Night, Akira Kurosawa's 1949 Stray Dog is considered a precursor to the buddy cop film. In it, a rookie cop has his gun stolen and must hunt down the man who took it and get it back. I love that film. Stakeout, which I mentioned before, is John Badham's 1987 comedy in which Richard Dreyfuss and Amelia Estevez are assigned to watch an escaped convict's former girlfriend in case her ex shows up. Complications ensue when Dreyfuss starts falling in love with her. The Guard is writer-director John Michael McDonald's 2011 film with Brendan Gleeson and Don Cheadle. It has Don Cheadle as a straight-shooting FBI agent joining forces with an unorthodox Irish police officer in Ireland to stop a drug smuggling ring. I actually almost chose that one instead of In the Heat of the Night, but I decided to go with something that's more of a classic. Hot Fuzz is Edgar Wright and Simon Pig's 2007 satire of buddy cop movies in which a London officer who is so good at his job he's making everyone else look bad is transferred to a perfect small town with no crime or so everyone thinks. And finally, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Shane Black's 2005 Christmas adjacent movie, in which a crook on the run gets an audition for an L.A. movie and ends up joining forces with a gay private detective to solve a murder. Uh, we did actually do an episode of Pop Art on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We paired it with the movie The Thin Man because they are both murder mysteries that take place at Christmas time. What is next? What should we be expecting from you? I just got finished shooting three episodes of a TV series for HBO in Thailand. It's the first original in Thai language. I think it's going to come out at the end of the year, and I'm just writing two other features right now. What is the name of the show? Can you share that? The show is called Forbidden. Well, as for me, I'll just go through my usual litany. You know, I'm a screenwriter and script consultant, and you can find more information about that on my Howard Kastner Screenplay Consultation page on Facebook. My blog is called Rantings and Ravings, and there I explore issues on film and screenwriting. I've published two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, supernatural, and fantasy short stories. And I've also published the second edition of my screenwriting book, More Rantings and Ravings of a Screenplay Reader, and I am an amateur photographer and you can find those on Instagram. The previous podcast was with actor-producer-director Thomas Gersh, where we talked Luke Besson's The Big Blue and the first movie to win Best Picture, Wings, two movies about friends who become rivals and rivals who become friends in the tense worlds of free diving and being an aerial pilot in World War I. I will then skip a week and return with Jordan Garcia, who hosts the Criterion Cult Film Podcast, where we will discuss Ghost World and The World of Henry Orient, two coming-of-age films about high school teen best friends. So with that, I want to thank you, Josh, very much for being a guest on my show. 
course, it's always a pleasure. It's great to either rediscover or discover these classic films that you propose. So I'm really looking forward to the next time we can do this again. Thank you.